0: so check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to Project at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm back and we're here. We have a special treat today. Dr. Howard Penrose is in the podcast with us. Howard, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for coming on. I'm excited for this one. Now, for people who aren't listening, Howard is the president of MotorDoc. So if you want to check that out, go to MotorDoc.com. And he's also the past chair of the SMRP. So before we dive into it, Howard, can you give us a little background about you? How did you get your start in reliability?
1: Back in high school in 1985. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or actually 1982. I'm sorry. I put myself forward on the Roosevelt already. But um, I uh, I took part in something called the Vocational Industrial Clubs of America. And I got assigned over to Amoco Labs, um, working on the tail end of the Amoco Ultimate uh, synthetic oil. And, um, and then also doing oil analysis uh, in the lab um, for uh, trains and automotive which was quite quite exciting. And then I made the decision after that to join the Navy. And uh, when I went uh, to sea as a conventional electrician, got involved with um, electric motors. I I took over the electric motor repair shop on a ship that was being built. Uh, So got sent to all the schools, including having my electric motor journeymanship by the time I was 19. Uh, so, uh, normally that's reserved for, for when you, uh, sign up again for another six years, but, uh, uh, they wanted somebody new and fresh to, to kind of take that on. And so at one point I was responsible for about 38 vessels worth of electric machines, um, following 1986 at a time when, um, we were still in the middle of the cold war. So trips to the North Atlantic were exciting, um, and at one point, I actually learned how to design electric motors. Then um, I left there in uh, 1988, at the very end of 1988, started in 1989, a company called Drysilker Electric Motors, um, and was a mechanic, a machinist, uh, field service, a couple other things. And then in um, uh, 1991, went to run another repair shop in Richmond, and then came back in 92 and took over field service at the same company uh, and then uh, left there in 96 and went to a small firm while I was waiting for my assignment over to the university of Illinois at Chicago, um, where I worked with what we now call artificial intelligence and machine learning um, at this consulting firm. We, we developed a, uh, um, fly throughs and and VRML and and other things that we use now, we call it uh, augmented reality. Um, We were working on distance learning packages and a number of other things for equipment. So then, uh, sorry, it's a little long, but it's it's a unique journey. 97, I ended up at the University of Illinois Energy Resources Center as their senior research engineer. And I did uh, a number of studies in Illinois that are built off of work that I had started since 1993 with the Department of Energy on energy-efficient electric motor systems, so motors and drives, Um, and also a focus on electric machinery repair and related equipment repair. So uh, while I was there, I was involved in the early days of solar, um, wind, and a couple other technologies. We weren't sure who was going to come out on top which now we know it's primarily wind um, and uh, was heavily involved in that and ran into a company for another project we were doing on condition analysis of electric machinery for repair versus replace decisions um, called Altest. So while I was working with them on their technology uh, and how to interpret the data before I ended up going there as general manager um my students, my industrial engineering students, and then I finished uh, what also was my PhD uh, dissertation called A Novel Approach to um, Industrial Systems, Energy, uh, Energy, Waste Stream, Process, and Reliability Analysis. Um, then when I went to Altest, I uh, started focusing back on electric machinery again and um, moved around quite a bit since then and started my own company and then went back to that original motor repair shop at one point to help them turn it around and then um, decided that I liked working for myself more. I can have a little more fun and play with toys a little bit more. So I uh, getting my hands dirty. Um, and when I've worked for large corporations, I keep rising to the top. So my clients in prior to the economic downturn included um, General Motors facilities. I was part of the uaw and, and management uh quality network plan maintenance program writing their programs for uh everything from motor management to you name it for um, maintenance and reliability uh, also got them involved in the save energy now program with the department of energy uh, took the lead on that for a little bit and then handed it over to the partners um and then also us steel Amtrak and a few others at the time. So uh, uh, now my primary clients are like National Institutes of Health and and uh, a large portion of the wind industry and uh, a lot of electric motor repair shops that need support. So that's kind of my journey. And somewhere along the way, I became involved in Society for Maintenance Reliability Professionals and raised uh, and and went through the ranks. So um, it's been exciting. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. And like for people who, who don't really know, like you, you also do research on electric motors now.
1: Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, was involved when I was a GM in the development of the hybrid Tahoe and the Volt and at John Deere, um, the hybrid 644 and 944 tractors. And, and I kind of joke about it and they'll get mad at me saying this, but, you know, it's always fun. I go quarterly to teach them how to build tractors. Uh, so all all exciting stuff and then of course uh, a lot of research in existing uh, electric machine reliability and some of that does stem from that period of time because when I was uh, working with John Deere one of the things I was tasked with was projecting life uh, cradle to grave of an electric machine being operated uh, randomly by an operator so on a variable frequency drive in a condensed system with fluid flowing over the surface for uh, cooling, and uh, we were accurate within to within a couple of hours um, with a with a high degree of confidence. Um, so it, I carried that through to uh, what I call time to failure estimation um, using collections of equipment, uh, and then um, have worked uh, a lot with with uh, technologies like electrical signature analysis. And that's kind of my focus right now. Uh, Although I use all of the other technology, motion amplification, vibration, um, uh, high voltage testing, low voltage testing, all to confirm findings and and also to help with those projections.
0: No, that's great. And that's, I mean, that's what I wanna dig into uh, during today or maybe we'll have to do another one because to be honest, I don't. I can't say I know too much about electrical signature analysis. So, I mean, to even take it further, I don't know too much about electrical motors in general. So, I'm looking forward to to diving in with into them with you, Howard.
1: And and you know, that's that's what I find exciting is that when I got out of the military, I got heavily, and I'm still heavily involved in IEEE and and standards development for materials and testing of electric machines and transformers. Um, when when I, took a, when I took a look at all of this when I got out, I said, well, first off, it turned out that I'm fourth generation. I didn't know that. It skipped over part of the family. So my grandfather and my great-grandfather were both uh, Westinghouse up in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, and then I had in transformers. So copper was in the blood. It just skipped over a little bit. But uh, electric machines are fascinating because most people see them as, you know, they're everywhere. Um, One of the food processing study results we got was uh, for a candy bar, 93% of the energy, that included steam and everything else, electrical and fuel-based energy, came through electric motors. Um, But it wasn't the motors that are really, motors are like a transformer. You transform electrical energy to mechanical torque or useful energy, and, um, and a lot of people don't realize is, uh, that, is that they're an energy converter. They're not actually the consumer of that energy. So whatever the process is is actually the, what consumes it. So um, when I went down the path of, of electrical signature analysis, which I dabbled in in the ne- in mid-1990s, because it's the technology has been out since the 1970s, I started looking at it and said, this is cool stuff. But then I got dragged into the energy spectrum. So we used it primarily to look at energy efficiency. And um, uh, then in 2001, uh, when I was at Altest, I discussed it with the uh, owner of Altest and said, uh, as his general manager said, I really want to put stuff together. So I worked with a company called Framatome, which makes empath in the nuclear power industry. And uh, another company, and we put together the Test Pro online unit to work along with their offline testing. Um, and then that gave me tools to continue the work and research I was doing. And, and then uh, now, within the last year, um, Framatome reached out to me and, and we had a discussion. And uh, now I'm, I'm utilizing their technology and, and making it available in the commercial side, uh, industrial and, and everything else. So um, that has been fun, Uh, you know, gives me a product to play with, but it also gives me a toy to play with, produces a lot of data. And in effect, what it does is it uses the air gap of the machine, the electrical fields that are there as a transducer. So um, it, it takes a look at what goes on in the entire system from incoming power into upstream to the driven equipment through that air gap, through that magnetic field, because everything ends up affecting that magnetic magnetic field. So the motor becomes not just a transducer for itself, but say for instance, in the wind industry, um, I walk into the base of a wind turbine and we grab data from the base of wind turbines. Whenever you see a transformer outside at the bottom of one of those big towers, um, we can collect the data right from, from just inside the door there. And I can tell you what's going on in all of the moving components of the generator, the coupling, every component in the gearbox, which has a a high-speed, mid-speed, and planetary gear set, the main shaft, main bearings, which are quite large, and even uh, blade pass frequencies uh, in about a minute-long test. So um, that's been uh, kind of revolutionary. Um, I've been doing the wind side since 2002 here and there. several years ago, I was asked to take a a deeper look. So it was a return back to my energy roots. So, uh, you know, somebody contacted me and said, we've got this huge problem. We've got all these wirings failing in the the rotors. Can you detect it? And I kind of looked at the guy and I said, well, yeah. (laughs) It's one of the easiest things for me to detect. And um, we came up with a methodology, applied it. Um, had 110% accuracy. Basically, we found some that they weren't aware of, uh, and then they confirmed it all. And then we um, presented that, um, oh, about 18 months later, uh, which was this last February, at the AWIA Operations and Maintenance Conference in San Diego. And uh, I'm talking about this a lot because about half my time right now is on wind power sites. Um, we had one... Only one false positive, and that was actually a slippering issue, uh, and and I misinterpreted the data slightly. Um, but we've um, been demonstrating issues with gearboxes and bearings and all kinds of other things that they've been confirming. And then I'm taking that information because the wind industry actually goes in and looks. So if, you, if I go up and I say, I've detected this bad bearing, uh, the outer race is bad, or you've got poor lubrication in this particular bearing, they go up and they look. So I know within a few weeks of, of data analysis whether or not we've been accurate or not. So I'm taking that data and that proof back into the industrial side. So you're going to see a lot more um, of my white papers and and, um, and professional papers coming out um, related to to the application of electrical signature analysis. Now, just so you're aware, electrical signature analysis is not, you know, directly Empath or, or Altest, it's also PDMA and Baker, and, and there's a few others out there. And as a matter of fact, because of the success in the wind industry, just since February, um, we're starting to see um, some additional IoT devices pop up. Uh, the good news for me is I got to produce one of the first um, continuous monitoring systems for ESA as well. So um, uh, from from that perspective, it's it's been exciting.
0: No, that, that is really cool. And now to just kind of give us a little introduction, is electrical signature analysis, is that the same thing as motor circuit analysis?
1: Okay. So there's been a lot of misnomers out there. Uh, we tried to um, uh, deal with that in IEEE standard 1415, which was a, uh, a standard that I presently chair um, that we're probably going to retire and start over. But um, that, that standard, we identified the names, electrical signature analysis, current signature analysis, voltage signature analysis, and um, separated it from motor circuit analysis. Rocky Mountain Institute back in the 1980s identified um, different terms. So Oak Ridge National Labs who developed the what's now the MPATH system for the nuclear power industry to look at motor operated valves specifically calls the online test where you're looking at voltage and current signatures, which are very similar to vibration analysis, electrical signature analysis. They also coined the term for low voltage testing like the uh, ALT test and the PDMA, and even the uh, medium and high voltage testing, such as surge testing from Baker and and MDS and some of these other companies, uh, and Electrom, of course, I I use them, started referring to that as motor circuit analysis, which was termed as an offline test. Now, I've seen people refer to motor current analysis, and then they'll shorten it up to MCA, and I think that kind of confuses um, uh, the community a little bit. Although the term motor current analysis is correct, Motor current analysis, which was developed originally by Bill Thompson uh, out of University of Edinburgh for offshore drilling rigs, is uh, can be utilized through some vibration analyzers and also through a technology available through Iris Power uh, or Qualitrol now. So um, that is a slightly different one. That kind of focuses on the electric motor and some things outside the electric motor, whereas electrical signature analysis looks at um, motors. Transformers and um, uh, and uh, generators, so it's it's more of a global view. It looks upstream and downstream. Current signature analysis looks towards the load only.
0: And and so you keep mentioning that vibration analysis and electrical signature analysis, they detect similar things. Can you, can you just give us an introduction to like electrical signature analysis? What does it detect that vibration doesn't? Because I assume most people listening, they probably do vibration analysis, but they probably don't do electrical signature analysis.
1: Uh, Very true. And I, and I kind of look at it like this. If, if um, you know, unfortunately most electrical types are not taught how to look at a fast Fourier transform. I'm a, you know, I used to do a while I still do vibration analysis, I refer to it as vibration analysis while standing on your head. In vibration analysis, you gather data, and there's all kinds of things you can do with the signals, but, but let's just sticking to just the basics. I take that, that information in from a point. So I have an accelerometer or, or whatever other transducer that might be a single axis, dual axis, or tri axis. I take that information in, I send it, and I process it so that I'm looking at amplitude versus frequency, as well as a few other things. And each of the frequencies associated that show up on that um, amplitude versus frequency, or spectra, is mathematically related to some component. Okay, so if I have um, a rotor on balance, it's going to be, one times the RPM, because the rotor is kind of orbiting inside, you know, and, and and moving. The shaft's moving up and down against the the bearing in a in a single direction. Uh, so I'm looking at that FFT now. An electrical signature analysis. I do the same thing, except with the magnetic field. Very very small movements translate into significant movement in current. Okay, so current and and magnetic fields are directly related. Uh, upstream the generator and voltage, which is a generator supplies voltage and stuff downstream uses that potential or that electrical pressure um, and generates a flow, which is current. So if I'm looking upstream, I use voltage. I look downstream, I use current. I still can do an FFT. The difference is it's called an amplitude modulated FFT. So that means instead of single peaks, I'm always going to get peak pairs. But they're all mathematically related. And because of my vibration background, I was able to look at it and say, oh, okay, I'm looking at a one-time RPM in current. That means that I have an unbalance or a bent shaft or some other condition. And then there's other signatures within the spectra that I can look at to help me confirm exactly what the condition is even with bearings. Now, I'm not going to detect bearing issues at the same stage. I will detect most issues through vibration and uh, ultrasonics, but I will detect it. So what is the primary difference? Um, First off, from electrical signature analysis, instead of looking at a base upwards in in things like uh, velocity or acceleration um, or displacement, I'm looking at a peak value down So, whatever my peak current is, I'm going to measure downwards to the next peak, which is associated with that peak current. And what's kind of cool about that is we first translate it to uh, decibels, so a relative force in relation to that peak current. It also means that as we change load over time, the peaks remain relatively the same. So, um, one of the powers behind electrical signature analysis. Is that it's not truly load dependent. So when I have heard people refer to it as, you know, you require such and such a percentage of load, that actually has more to do with resolution, because the frequency moves in and out. And the one that a lot of people are familiar with is rotor bar issues, which show up as um, pull pass frequency. So in uh, in vibration, I'd have to look at the number of rotor bars times the RPM. And I'm going to get plus or minus running speed or plus or minus um, the, uh, the uh, line frequency, twice the line frequency sidebands around that signature. In electrical signature analysis, I get twice the slip frequency or how much the motor doesn't keep up with the actual synchronous speed sidebands around my line frequency. And there's a few other things I can look at too, depending on who you talk to. Uh, but primarily, that, that's what those indicate. That value doesn't change based on load. As a matter of fact, we know because of the work done at Oak Ridge National Labs, how many dB down indicate um, fractured bars, broken bars, and so on. And there continues to be research in that area. The second major difference between the two is vibration analysis. Because I have to measure the movement of that rotor through the shaft, through the bearing, um, through the material that's above it, it's a single point of test. So um, if I put a tra- vibration transducer over a bearing, uh, I'm going to measure the movement of the shaft of that motor up and down against the bearing through the material, etc., up to that transducer versus electrical signature analysis, which I'm going directly to the source. That means that the electrical signature analysis, I get to see the entire system at once because I'm looking at it from the inside And I'm looking at all the impacts on that magnetic field from everything through the system. So if I'm looking at a gearbox with vibration, I have to make sure my transducers are above each bearing or each bearing I'm interested in. With electrical signature analysis, I'm looking at what's happening torsionally and I'm looking at... um, the small vibrations that translate and vibrate all the way back to the system, even through belted applications. So I see a little vibration comes all the way back. I get some side-to-side movement, plus I get some torsional issues. The the rotor kind of rocks back and forth a little bit. It has to work its way through defects. And all of that information gets translated into an FFT. Those FFTs will be in current and voltage, um, and then some technologies also do it in torque, and then the one we introduced was also power. So we're looking at the um, FFT in, in kilowatts, which brings me back. What's was kind of nice about the kilowatt one is it brings me back to, you know, instead of having peak pairs everywhere, I've got single peak. So if I have a bearing problem, I multiply the bearing ID, OD, ball or, or cage times the RPM, and I, I'll have a peak at that point.
0: Now... When you're hooking up for the electrical signature analysis, is are you plugging into the plug-in cable, or or how does that work?
1: A couple of ways of doing it. Um, I think all of us now have call what you know different variations of the name eSafe or ePlug. Um, so we'll plug into something so that little current transformers that are around the cables, or and voltage is taken. To the surface of the pan of a panel, so you can plug in there. Um, alternately, and and because of what I do for a living, where I'm primarily out troubleshooting or or taking a look at a one-off, um, is I go out there and I have to clamp on current clamps and and clip on voltage clips, pretty much like a voltmeter, except I'm doing, you know, if I can, three phases and voltage and current. Uh, Worst case is I do one phase of current, which just gives me current signature analysis. So uh, you'll often find uh, that you have to get access to panels. Uh, With wind turbines, the common thing is they shut down the wind turbine, we hook up, they start it back up, we collect data, they shut it back down, we disconnect. Um, And that whole process, including data collections, usually about um, 10 to 15 minutes a tower versus half a day or more climbing a tower and looking at stuff and, and doing things like that. Um, so in a plant like at uh, one of my larger client national institutes of health, when we have all the machines running, I can walk into the motor control center. They're all 4160 or 13,800 volts. So I can't cl- connect directly to that. So I go into the back of the multi lens and I put on smaller current clamps and I take my voltage from there. And then I'm able to use that data. Uh, so it's not difficult to collect the data. Uh, it's more that the people who tend to understand how to look at an FFT are mechanical in nature and the electrical side kind of um, can, can be um, daunting. Um, so uh, we, we saw less acceptance of, of electrical signature analysis early on because you have to open up and look inside an electrical panel. And then with NFPA 70E and all the requirements, um, that that can become more challenging when you go into different facilities. Sometimes having to shut off the equipment or you have to have uh, somebody suited up who's connecting and disconnecting to either extreme.
0: Yeah, that, that's a little bit of a, of, of a problem. Now, do you see these Like if we were, if someone's listening and they're they're operating a plant, could they purchase their own machine and do like monthly inspections or like how frequently should people do this type of inspection? Should they just call you? Like, how does this work?
1: (laughs) I hope they buy this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) They can call me. I mean, we've got partners out there on the empath side now, including companies like Shermco. And I am um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm focused on service companies having access to both provide the service, but also to be able to sell the equipment to people that want to do their own data collection. Uh, the analysis, the empath system, just uh, it's a, I don't like speaking on the commercial side too much and stuff like this, but I will. <laughs> uh, the uh, the empath system, which is the exact same software as what I was using before with all tests actually analyzes and tells you what's going on both with the motor and the driven equipment and upstream, whether it's AC motors or DC motors. So it'll actually tell you what it sees. And, and we built that into the continuous monitoring stuff as well, that you can hook up and not worry about, let it run. It'll alarm you, email you, whatever. So, um, uh, it does not have to be contacting somebody like myself. As a matter of fact, the, the down the road, my, my expectation is, um, is more training uh, for people that are utilizing the technology and uh, helping people interpret the really tough stuff, you know, when they run into something unusual. We just ran into one with a wind turbine. I'm going out to help them confirm it next week, where we saw um, gear mesh issues in the planetary gear set, which we knew that they were having issues there because they'd they'd destroyed two gearboxes prior to our being involved but I was seeing generator running speed times that, so that meant the base is in movement as well. So we're going out to, to confirm that kind of issue. That kind of, the, how to analyze that and figure that out um, went beyond uh, some of the folks that were doing the uh, the basic analysis. But the intention is, after going through this exercise, those folks that have been involved with me, because I like to teach while, I, while I'm doing the work, um, will understand how to analyze something in that manner and that means i'll get less calls and and they'll be able to interpret some of that themselves uh, which i feel is extremely important if you want a technology to move forward
0: oh yeah absolutely and that's you you kind of you kind of answered my next question was like where do people learn this electrical signature analysis
1: excellent question there are, uh, I think, uh, all of the suppliers of electrical signature analysis devices do classes, um, including myself. We do classes. Some are our general public classes. I'm finding that I'm doing more uh, private classes. People call up and have us come in to teach at their site. So um, I get very specific. You know, I basically tailor it to what they're doing. Like I won't want to do a wind site where I'm teaching people how to work on the stuff there and teach them DC motors. Or when I go out and I do elevator analysis training, um, we, we spend a great deal of time on DC because still DC machines are the primary elevators on large buildings. But then we, then we do drop down to, to some AC stuff. Uh, Steel, it's the same thing. You're going to get a mixture of AC and DC. So I tend to focus on any of those in order to keep it, small and digestible three or four day class by the end of a fourth day people are falling asleep um you're already lucky if they're picking up um half of it even when you know we we try to do on uh, hands-on as much as possible matter of fact when i do when i do the public classes i always partner with a motor repair shop and then we go into the shop and we we test a real machine in, in whenever possible it's one that's come in from a customer and they don't know what's wrong with it. So we do the electrical signature analysis, take it apart, and then see what we found in the class. And I, I think that that tends to really, really help somebody who's learning comprehend that, you know, what they're gonna make a call on is real. It's there. They can see it. Uh, versus um, you know, sitting in a, a, a lecture and, and seeing pictures or, or whatever else, which I think people might pick up 20, 25% from something like that. So when I go, I'll be at the Viatech and I'll also be at CPM Connect this year speaking on this, uh, on this topic. Um, that's a vibration institute and also uh, Mobius. And, um, uh, you know, it's lecture. So I try to keep those very short um, and I tried to, to walk through some case studies because people love stories, I found. Um, and, and hopefully they're able to take that information back and, and apply it, regardless of whose technology they're using. I'm more interested in people utilizing the technology and helping move it forward. Um, from a certification standpoint right now. Uh, only the manufacturers. You know, like if you come to one of my classes, I will give you a certificate at the end saying you completed the class. Um, we're working with Mobius right now, and other people may also be working on it on developing a a level one through. We're not clear on it yet, but probably level three or four uh, certification for uh, current or electrical signature analysis.
0: Awesome, and and, and kind of. Um, on that, the last thing I wanted to ask you before we kind of get wrap up here is I get this question a lot is people are looking to take the CMRP exam. And, you know, since you are part of the SMRP, what are your tips on, or what's your advice on people looking to take the CMRP exam?
1: Oh, you know what? I'm glad you asked. Um, you know, it, it, when when I took it back in two thousand four or five, <laughs>
0: um,
1: I, I, you know, I went in there and and I was really concerned. And but I'd been around the industry a little bit. And you have to remember, I was on the repair side, a little bit of consulting. Uh, I went all the way back to what I learned in the Navy under the 3M system in the nineteen eighties, and I was able to to get my way through it. I mean, don't get me wrong, too. I'm an industrial engineer, so. Um, uh, people mistake me for an electrical because of all the motor design, but the industrial engineering definitely gave me uh, an aspect of it because I had to work with reliability formulas. So um, uh, there really isn't a huge amount to study for it. It's more of an experience-based exam, but because of the demand and the fact that, that people are looking and saying, okay, how do we fill the hole because people want to be able to study for it? You can review things for it because every question in the exam relates back to a question that has to go to a body of knowledge. So um, on the SMRP site, uh, if you go into the exam, there's a roadmap. Um, It gives recommended reading based upon the type of work that you do. uh, If you want, if you if you really need to study, um, go there, take a look at it. Other than that, if you've been in the maintenance management side or even reliability management side uh, of a company for a little bit, you know, supervisor above. If you've been in that position for four or five years, uh, you, have, uh, you, you have a good chance of understanding a majority of the test. If you're a technician, take a look at the CMRT. That one actually you can study for. There's, there's information on the SMRP site for that. The CMRP, though, is an ANSI accredited uh, exam that's recognized worldwide, as a matter of fact, some organizations in the Middle East, you cannot even get a job in the management side unless you have a CMRP. Um, there's companies here in the U.S. That, that also look at that as a good, um, as something to have in order to go for those positions. And at one point, uh, some time ago, um, BP, I, I, I'm going to cite them because we had that, uh they were looking for a reliability rotating machine specialist and they said you had to have either a PhD or a CMRP. So um, that one, that one uh, I almost applied for it.
0: because I had both. (laughs) You're doubly qualified.
1: (laughs) But I I, I looked at it and I said, uh, you know, I saw stuff like that and, and really the gaining of the gaining Of of uh, gaining ground of 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 the CMRP and and uh, you know we're we're talking about over six thousand CMRPs globally now and more coming Um, we're we're ramping things up within CMRP we're with us within SMRP to to really um, support the CMRP even more Um, we've got a few changes happening so there'll be some growing pains that are happening because we just over the last three four years. We've had, um, you know, with the exception of my year, we had great leadership. Just kidding. Um, but, no, we've had, we've had people working towards long-term goals in the board of SMRP and all of the other volunteers and the staff. So um, as we, every year we've got major accomplishments happening. This year you're going to see a big change in the CMRP and how easy it is to access. Um, it's still going to be a very stringent exam it, it, when you pass it. I would say when, um, maybe the first time, might be the second time, maybe the third time, but you will definitely feel like you've accomplished something. It's not an open book exam. So um, I always recommend people, if you're not sure, take it. Just go in, sit down. It's a two and a half hour exam. Um, if if for some reason you don't pass, you you get something back that tells you exactly where the weak spots are. If you need to study, go to the website. We have roadmaps now and other things to, to help you prepare for the exam. Um, if you have experience in the industry, uh, military consultants are passing um, uh, and suppliers are passing that, that, that directly touch their, their customer. And then end users are, are making it through, you know, pretty, pretty handily. Um, we don't discuss what the percentages are or anything like that. We can't. Um, but, uh, but, you know, uh, not everybody passes, uh, of course the first time, but they definitely, um, even the ones that don't, uh, a majority of them say it was a good experience.
0: Yeah. I mean, in my experience and especially now, like, like, as you know, I'm, I'm looking for a job and you do see CMRP as, at least for reliability positions, it's the most, well-recognized one. It's, it most often shows up on job postings, at least what I've seen over the last few months here. So I I definitely, I definitely recommend people take it and I think it's great.
1: Well, I know it's done a lot for my career. Um, I've been overseas a few times and, and people will see that as the greater credential over any other that, that I present. So, uh, uh, I, I am so glad that I took it when I did. I think it had a, a significant impact on my career. Um, and I felt strongly enough about it that, that uh, I got involved in, in the leadership side of SMRP because I wanted to make sure that, that uh, you know, everything that we were involved in uh, moved forward. Uh, you know, right now, SMRP is involved in, in um, we're, not, we're not a uh, lobbying organization, but we're heavily involved in politics on OSHA. Uh, we just got, um, we pushed through and, and we're being blamed wholeheartedly for it, uh, close to 1.2 trillion in work uh, workforce development funds for trade schools. It was called the Perkins reauthorization. Right now I'm working with, um, with uh, government officials on including um, uh, cybersecurity as part of that. Uh, and then we have others that are working on different areas within uh, the government. So my area right now, because I'm I'm gonna step back a little bit and let fresh minds. Because I've been on the board for ten years, um, let some fresh minds get in there. Uh, I'm doing um, cybersecurity, uh, smart grid, and, and and infrastructure, which has been very fascinating. Um, and things aren't always what they appear on the news. When I go to Washington D.C., I'm meeting with White House, I'm meeting with Congress, I'm meeting with Senate both sides and tend to find there's more agreement than there is uh, <laughs> not a lot of things. So, um, you know, I, I watch the news for fun and then I go and actually participate and see that I'm dealing with two different worlds.
0: That's right. The, the world's not ending people.
1: <laughs> not by a long shot. Um, I, 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 look at, I refer to now the news as reality TV. Um, But when you actually go on the Hill, you learn a lot. And every year, you know, for those that are involved in in SMRP, we, we do a Hill call and members are invited to participate. And we're given specific areas of interest and so on. And we try to get the people in their own area of interest and they get a chance to meet and see what's going on in the Hill and get involved in legislation. It's a one day visit for that. But then all of the other work that happens over the course of the year, people get as involved or, or not as they wish. So um, there's there's a lot going on. And we're, we're seeing that the CMRP is heavily accepted on the Hill. We, they, they recognize us immediately. Um, the, the second year we went there, we started working with OSHA. OSHA recognized the CMRP, had it listed on their website as a desired certification. Um, so when, when when you start looking at all of that work and the fact that SMRP is an independent professional society, like an IEEE or an ASME and organizations like that, it's not owned by an individual, it is a true professional society um, that's more accepted and is making more changes um, to the regulations and, and um, uh, laws that that you and I in our industry uh, have to deal with. So we're not sitting back trying to figure out how to react. We're actually participating and helping guide what's going on um, from, from the legislative part. Now what's kind of nice is because we happen to be the U S and it's not an arrogant standpoint, everybody likes to follow what we do. So um, we're seeing, other organizations, because we're part of the Global Forum on Maintenance and Asset Management, other organizations duplicating what we're doing with their governments. So um, just because, you know, an SMRP is a global organization, I keep people, here. SMRP National. No, it's SMRP International. Um, while we deal directly with stuff in the States, because a majority of our members, two-thirds, by the way, it's, oh, I'm sorry, not even two-thirds, 60%, it's, it's now 40%. Are outside the U.S. Uh, are in the U.S. We focus on on our government, but we are impacting what's going on uh, around the globe.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there. And if people are listening and they want to check out the SMRP, just go to smrp.org. And as well, you can check out if and see if there's a local chapter. I know, I mean, Paul Crocker has one in Kansas City that they do some events for. So check out that if if there's one in your area, we'll see we'll see if that's good. Now, Howard, last question I got for you: Do you have any plugs? Like you mentioned a few conferences that you'll be at, but can you can you give us the full list for the for 2019?
1: Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to be at IEEE in Calgary. Then I'm going to be at uh, the ISA conference um, in uh, uh, in Las Vegas. That'll be in July uh, the, uh, July Vibration Institute, um, September, I'm on the fence about one. Um, but that would be the RPM conference only because of a conflict. It's a great conference happens right in Michigan. Um, then the CBM conference. And there's a few others that I'm, I'm looking at right now, uh, that I'll try to attend. I I do try to get speaking engagements there, but if not, I'll be in the booth. Um, and then, of course, there's some wind conferences I'll be involved in. Uh, the um, CBM conference will also probably be meeting on the certification program. Uh, that's uh, that's Mobius's conference. Uh, and then beyond that, um, I have free access if you're if you're curious about uh, electrical motor diagnostics in general, including electrical signature analysis, on my website motordoc.com um there's an archive section just click on that it's all free do you know download read whatever you want or even on my linkedin page uh, i have those as well and then also mpathcms.com um those are all areas where and and you don't have to sign up for anything i don't need to know who you are go take a look um, and hopefully that helps you with your your job
0: yeah absolutely and and if you don't already follow howard on linkedin if you got through LinkedIn, obviously he'll be tagged in the post. If not, just check the podcast notes, Howard Penrose, follow him. He puts out some great stuff. And then every once in a while, you'll get some posts on powerlifting.
1: <laughs> oh, I thought we were avoiding that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe next time. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. This year, this is the first year in seven years. I won't be team USA. Um, but uh, I, I, I decided to have a recovery year. Um, And I'm only doing one meet in July um, to support um, Hope Kids, which uh, we raise about a quarter million dollars a year. Awesome. And we just finished one at our gym. I own a powerlifting gym, one of the largest in the U.S. uh, here in Lombard, Illinois. And that one we just did a um, a two-hour fundraiser for autism. It was a bench press meet. So we had one person, a a six-year-old bench, 12 pounds, And then another person benched uh, 965 and just shyly missed a thousand pound bench. Uh, We raised um, just shy of $14,000 for the Autism Society of America. So um, we do try to give back. uh, And that's part of the reason um, why I have fun doing that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. And, you know, I did chess today at the gym, but I was nowhere close to 965.
1: yeah my my uh, my coach has me planned to be touching at 550 today for bench so <laughs> uh,
0: that that's really strong <laughs>
1: yeah well you know <laughs> got to do something powerlifting is nice i can eat pizza <laughs> <laughs>
0: Awesome. No, Howard, I appreciate you joining us today and sharing your expertise with us. I know like next time we got to get you back on and maybe we'll talk a little bit about cybersecurity or we'll dive deeper into motors, but that was fun.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much.